Evening, everyone, or morning, whenever you listen to this, because it's pre-recorded, and you are listening to Kino Kingdom 47, uh, which is, uh, I, I'm excited about this one because I get to talk about another three Godfrey Hole films I've watched, um, which, and i, I got to be fair, this, it's, it, I don't know if we're going to get to them in this, but my week has been pretty Marvel-tastic. Um, and obviously we, we missed a week due to illness, so it's a bit of a backlog as always. But I, I'm I'm just going to launch into the Godfrey Hole films be, just before I forget any more about them. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a it's been a while since the last one, so I've had to be pretty brutal about the films I won't be talking about today. So oh, I really? will not be mentioning the following: Mimic, Jeepers Creepers, That Was Then, This Is Now, What Lies Beneath, The Haunting in Haunting in Connecticut, Black Hawk Down, Ransom, The Boy, and Alone in the Neon Jungle. So. Bloody hell. Some, there's some decent ones there. So do you think you'll revisit them in the future, or, or you just... Uh, I don't know. They're, um, either, they're either too bad, <laughs> too boringly bad to talk about, or too average to talk about. So. Uh, yeah. um, well, if we, we kick off then with the Arkansas before we go into the movies, because there was a, quite a heavy response this week. I think I've got four or five responses. And we had to get from... Um, Chuck Norris to Brie Larson <clears throat> and um, so Transvaal um, messaged us and he said that Chuck Norris was in Lone Wolf McQuaid with David Carradine who was in Kill Bill Volume 2 with Samuel L. Jackson who was in Captain Marvel with Brie Larson now the last step there will become familiar to our listeners as I go through the others <laughs> the Lone Wolf McQuaid reference not so common <laughs> uh, we had an email from Lee Nova who said that uh, Chuck Norris was in Dodgeball with Ben Stiller, who was in Tropic Thunder with Robert Downey Jr., who was in Avengers Endgame with Brie Larson, and that is three steps again. Laszlo, uh, Laszlo Buckets, our, our sometimes co-host, said that Chuck Norris was in Expendables 2 with Bruce Willis, who was in Die Hard 3 with Samuel L. Jackson, who was in Captain Marvel with Brie Larson, another three steps. I wish I'd thought of the Samuel L. Jackson thing. This is becoming you, very, very apparent. Utah Smith emailed in and said Chuck Norris was in Expendables 2 with Jason Statham, who was in Spy with Jude Law, different route there, who was in Captain Marvel with Brie Larson for another three-stepper. And Ian Thrust emailed in and said that Chuck Norris uh, was with Sylvester Stallone in Expendables 2, who was in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and any Marvel film, I can't be bothered to list them. <laughs> I like that. Was Sylvester Stallone in Guardians of the Galaxy too? I, I think he voiced some shark or something. I don't know. I mean, I, I've actually I'm ten minutes into Guardians of the Galaxy two. I've never seen it, so I'm not. He was, I know he, he isn't. He was. He's the shark dude in. Um, oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. In Suicide uh, Squad. Su- Suicide Squad. Yeah. Anyway, oh. regardless, so there's such massive ensemble cast. Yeah. Okay, so they're all three steppers, really, aren't they? They are indeed. I couldn't even manage a three-stepper. Oh, my God. Okay, and I'm not even 100% sure <laughs> that my route is correct. So I, my route was Chuck Norris is in Expendables 2 with Jet Li, I think, who's in ex, who's in Lethal Weapon 4, I think, with Mel Gibson, yeah, who's, in, who's in Air America with Robert Downey Jr., who's in Endgame, not that one, with Brie Larson. <laughs> so how is that, what, four or five? What's that? That's four. 
before Endgame. Like you have to say Endgame, not that one. Just uh, yeah, like the anyone Al- else. <laughs> all the Al Cliver fans are listening. I'm like, oh, I don't remember Brie Larson in that. <laughs> she would be young. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So okay. Well, that, so audience. Um, I don't know the scores. It's like 46 of the audience and five to you, I think. Something so like that. Yeah. They're, sa- right. they're, they're sailing in the lead, really. Um, <laughs> really is weird. They've really caught up. So I just want to do this, like I said. I'm if am I okay to go first because I honestly this the these films, these Godfrey Ho films I watch um, with my brother Transvaal, they they're astonishing and they they seem to just disappear in my mind. And I just want to lump them all together. Am I okay to do that first off? That's absolutely fine. Well, so we watched three films. I mean, he lumps them all together anyway, doesn't he? Really. So. Well, honestly, this is really going to come into it because well, just just off right. So there's there's. One of the films is called Ninja Terminator, right? And it's about um, it's about three ninjas collecting three pieces of a statue to give them power. The film after that is called, and, and this 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 three pieces of a statue is called the Golden Ninja Warrior. The film after that, in the same year, all of these films are 1986, is called Golden Ninja Warrior, and it's about someone terminating ninjas, and it doesn't have a statue in it. Right. And then the ninja squad is just doesn't have a squad of ninjas in it. I dare say if we'd watched the fourth film, that that would make sense for the previous title again. I, it's like, did he just get the title? Did he just apply the wrong titles? Or? I yeah, I, I think he's applied. I think it's so it's such lazy filmmaking that I think he's actually put the wrong titles on his own films because the titles are so but like basic if you know what I mean. That like you know there's one like ninja um, gold ninja warrior is about someone going around terminating ninjas but it's not called that it's a but then one where they keep on referring to a golden ninja warrior the golden ninja warrior is called ninja terminator so wow um yeah i just want i'm gonna lump all these in one they're astonishing they're absolutely they're like um i've never seen anything like it and like i just mentioned before we started recording my brother's got about another six of them already for us to go through and i can't wait because it's like it's just like a, a a blunderbuss of ideas. The, we've realised the best film is um, was Ninja Terminator, which isn't about someone terminating ninjas. But the reason it's good is because fifty percent of the film is is footage from a Korean film called something like The Bloke Who Didn't Pay Again on the Ferry, um, and it's got like really good martial arts in it. But so then, the, but the Korean film is that by him or is that? Just no, it's, it's just just wow. owned by the same production company, just lifted and inserted. And the way that, and then the other half of the film is um, uh, Richard Harrison, who appears in most of these films under different guises and voiced by different people. Uh, is that it's like this sort of Timothy Dalton-esque American, like handsome older man who rocks up as a, as a ninja in them. He is just trying to. It's like he's the head of some company and he's trying to find a girl who's been kidnapped. Uh, so the whole film is him on this really weirdly cheesy toy Garfield phone that like opens the eyes when you lift the, the handset off the cradle, right. uh, sitting in like a pink T-shirt um, and just having phone calls with this this, this guy called Jaguar Wong who does all the heavy lifting. So <laughs> they never really meet, obviously, because they're two entirely separate films from entirely separate countries. But it, they, they every now and again, they'll have a phone, one of them will like be near a phone and it'll cut to the other person just saying something that's dubbed differently on the phone, like, have oh, you found the girl yet? No. And then offer some more Korean ass kicking. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. A, it's, a, it's actually the best Godfrey Ho film because it's, um, well, because the, this guy, Jagger Wong, I think he's played by someone called Jack Lamb, 
it is actually really good and they're, they're like really right. good comedic fight scenes that said because we've only seen 50 percent of the film the final fight doesn't make any sense because they're on this beach and he keeps on looking at this bloke's feet that he's fighting it's like an older mm. bloke and they're fighting on the beach and he keeps on as they fight he keeps on sinking in the sand and he keeps on trying to make him jump and land on like his head and he moves out the way so he keeps on sinking deeper and, mm. and you and you think obviously this is part this is, makes sense in the parts of the film we haven't seen <laughs> So anyway, yeah, and it's just there's a brilliant sequence in it as well where Richard Harrison gets sent this VHS of a woman getting really brutally tortured in this like unflinching scene where she's just totally full frontal naked getting just whipped and it goes on for minutes and mm. he's just he's just sitting there looking at the screen and it, and his wife is sat next to him watching it as well. Um they're obviously mm. like, you know, it's like, a, you know, pay us the money and this will carry on. But instead of turning it on and then turning it off, he just sits there like staring straight ahead at the TV while his wife kind of like gives him side eye and just like sort of get, gets more and more disgusted. And then the scene just ends. But of course, that could be like something like Manhunter. <laughs> yeah. um, so then moving on to Gold, uh, sorry, the Ninja Squad, which features, which should have been called Ninja Terminator yeah, because. Yeah. This is the one where it's Richard Harrison again, this time wearing a headband sash that says Ninja on it and a fully like Power Rangers, like bright pink costume. And we just see him in these constant training montages doing really like bad sword work alone on a mountain. Then the film cuts again, tied in by a phone call to an Australian guy who doesn't know any Kung Fu and is just a boxer saying that he was apparently trained by Richard Harrison's character, getting involved in this, this, this fight between these two gangs. Um, this is, this is, so this is the one that should have been called Ninja Terminator because every time it cuts to Richard Harrison, he has like this weird sort of flashback to events he, we haven't seen of ninjas getting killed, all of like wearing different colored clothes, like yellow clothes or red like clothes. Like Power or Rangers. Clothes. Yes, but with like a sash that says ninja on it. By Just the, in case you weren't aware. Because <laughs> you weren't sure what they were doing because they're ballet dancers. <laughs> and then the third film uh, we watched was called Golden Ninja Warrior, which is should have been what um ninja terminator was called because <laughs> but, but this is this is doesn't really have richard harrison in it it's got it's set it's a female ninja and my brother and i thought oh this is different you know this is going to be maybe some sort of early sort of girl power thing but no mm. what it is what it is is a series of really brutal rape scenes and huh. like horrendous torture against women with like really lingering shots over their bodies um and then, and then every now and again there will be some sort of martial arts inserted there's one sec there's one section um well two sections of this film that stick in my mind one of them is where it zooms in on a man <laughs> like apropos of nothing it cuts to a man on a ship like hunched in the corner of a room eating a biscuit and the camera zooms in really slowly, but it's so dark and badly lit that they've clearly put like a really high contrast blue filter on it. So it's really glaring. That's another thing is the sound in um, Ninja Squad almost gave my brother a migraine because it's so piercing. It's just this really piercing cymbal crashes all the time. And um, it sequences where the, the, the camera will zoom in on the wrong thing and then slowly like a move across to get the actual scene oh in frame. There's a sequence where there's a bloke that I think it's in Ninja Terminator, which should have been called golden Ninja warrior, where <laughs> someone gets killed by having a shuriken thrown in their back when he's protecting part of the statue. And it cuts to just two people at, it could be any, it could be any other film just at a grave. And obviously 
because of the length of the dialogue of the dubbing, they have to just keep talking until the scenes match, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, so yes. there's a there's a woman like sort of really upset over this grave and the camera zooms in on them, but zooms in too far to the left. And then the pans across a good 40 <sighs> degrees until it's in frame. And then this guy just starts saying, I just can't believe he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> I can't believe he's dead. They said he. They said it was suicide, but he had metal in his back, so it must have been murder. Why are they saying? Can you believe he's dead? And it goes on, and you think <laughs> one day he was alive, and the next, yes, dead. Yeah, the fact that he said he had metal in his back is it's just shuriken or ninja star. It's why would you say he was found with metal in his back? It's clearly a ninja star. Um, but yeah, it just goes on and on, and it's it's amazing. And this is the film as well that has a a, a, sequ- a sequence of a guy in a really bright platinum wig and a white suit. And at the end of the film, he takes the wig off and his suit, and he's just wearing like the same haircut but black, and the same suit but black underneath. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. I, again, it's obviously footage taken from a film I'm not party to as a viewer, so I have no idea why. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, so so far the best Godfrey old film is Ninja Terminator, although it, it should have been called something else. That's <laughs> so confusing. <laughs> yeah. Having to, yeah, the best one is Ninja Terminator, even though it doesn't have a Ninja Terminator in it. it but there is a film with Ninja Terminator in, but that's not the best one. No, because you're thinking, you're thinking of Ninja Squad. So I, I, I probably missed a lot of things. My brother listens back to this. He'll, there's probably like a dozen things we could list, but yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try and have a better memory for next time. So that's um, my. Are there any scenes of like excessive exposition where you just told a load of like, names? By any chance? Oh, do you know what? Not not in this one. Like, oh, none of these right, films okay. start off with a load of people around the table passing around Polaroids of scenes from the film we're about to see, just listing first names. Um, <laughs> no, the, although there is a scene in this. Uh, I think it's in Nin- again. I've lost track. And I think it's Ninja Squad, the Australian dude, just getting into fights where um, he's infiltrating a gang and they're banging around a load of first names of, of henchmen we just never see. But um, yeah, the other ones. Uh, it's more. It, it's just the fact that, like I said, that my brother oh, wow, Ninja Terminator is actually really good. And he said, the thing is, Britt, the only reason you think this is good is because 50% of it is a Korean film that Godfrey Ho didn't direct. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And even then, there's problems with the uh, the camera work. So. But, uh, yeah, the man so how, to Brian Ferry or whatever it was called. How many... Uh... How many more Godfrey Ho films have you got to, you got to watch? Right, I guess there's basically an infinite amount, really. There's 150. Wow. Um, and like I think that he made about 12 films in 1986 alone. So it's right. just one of those things, whenever I see my brother Transvaal, we just try and pump through three or four Godfrey Ho films because I, I can promise I can promise you there's nothing like his back catalogue on this earth. Where do you get them from? Do they... Well, they no, they're not on any streaming services. Sadly. Not even Rakuten, the worst streaming service. Um, <laughs> he he picks them up in like charity shops and stuff, which is good because they are they just like they like Robo Vampire is like twenty odd quid online, and that's the one with just a Robocop on the cover. So that's uh, the one yeah. we want to watch next. Um, but I've yeah, heard of that weirdly. Maybe it was you just brought it to my attention because it had Robocop on it. Yeah, I can promise you that the person in the film does not look like Robocop. He looks like a man with an arzo on his face and two pillows over his shoulder and a six-pack drawn on a T-shirt. Jesus. That sounds amazing. It is amazing. So, yeah, that's my Godfrey Ho trilogy out the way. It's uh, it's over to you, babe. Okay. Can I just run through some mountaineering documentaries then quickly? (laughs) 
I didn't expect you to say that, but by all means. <laughs> I've been gorging on climbing documentaries, not boring ones, ones about really like proper alpine <clears throat> adventures. Is, is, are you drawn to, is it sort of the, the, the human spirit, the survival aspect then? Yeah. Uh, the fact that it's just in, the, these people are insane, but also very positive and quite inspirational, I suppose. Um, it, my interest started when I watched this um, documentary called 14 Peaks on Netflix, which um, is a newish documentary. Um, so basically, the background to this is there are, are 14 uh, mountains in the world which are over 8,000 metres. And that's the reason why that's relevant is because over 8,000 metres, your body basically just starts dying. So they're pretty big deal. Um, and so, you know, you've got... Uh, stuff like Everest obviously and then you got K2 most of them are in, I think they're all in the Himalayas perhaps or most of them are um now bear in mind that about a third of people who've tried to climb K2 have just died so it's not easy just to do that one for example there are 14 mm -hmm. of them and this British Gurkha special forces dude called Nirmal Purger he calls himself Nims he decided that he was going to try and climb them all all 14 in seven months so that's one every two weeks obviously and um, now yeah. other people have done it but over a period of decades so it's a crazy talk. this guy's crazy he's very inspiring and he's a very entertaining guy um my only problem with the documentary is it should be a bit longer because it's like 90 minutes to cover all of these 14 mountains and we get like so we get like three minutes of everest it doesn't really quite have the gravitas but it's it's really cool um uh, i also watched one that was on netflix i also watched one called a deadly ascent on youtube this tells the story of um this tells the story of everest in uh in 2019 when um there was a basically a traffic jam because so many people tried to climb it and there are hundreds of people all all in this big traffic jam on Everest and 11 people died. Um, it focuses on particularly on one, this one Indian guy who had to leave his wife up there because she ran out of oxygen because they're all waiting around to get to the summit. And and then the second part of it focuses on the Sherpas, which is quite nice. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, that's a that's a pretty well, cool. Sorry, so I had to leave, it was, as, in, as in his wife died in a queue on a mountain. Yes, she just ran out of oxygen. Because obviously she had oxygen bottles, but if you wait around, then your oxygen dwindles, dwindles, dwindles. So I've never heard of anyone dying in a queue for it to go up the top of a it's mountain. It's astonishing. There's so many. There's various reasons, but it's it's quite interesting and in, like why it is that this sort of thing happens is because they've just basically loosened up all the um all the kind of regulations behind it. So so like basically anyone with a bit of cash can just go and do it. Just go and have a go. It's just crazy. Um. Mm. Uh, I the third one I watched. Uh, well, this is third. I, I've got four here, and these are the best ones I've seen. But there's one called Meru, M E R U, uh, which I watched on Amazon. This is the story of uh, these three guys, including the very amiable Jimmy Chin. Um, that's right. His name is Jimmy Chin, which will be especially amusing to uh, fans of Viz. Eight, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say 80s football programs, but anyway, anyway, um, so basically they're trying to climb the last unclimbed peak in the world. Well, I say the last unclimbed peak. Uh, this is the last unforced unclimbed peak in the world because there are other peaks which will never be climbed because the government of Bhutan 
um, won't let people climb peaks over six thousand meters, for example. So there's like mountains that no one's ever going to climb. But anyway, so Meru was the last of them, and because it, it's such a son of a bitch. Um, and this is quite possibly my favourite of the climbing documentaries because there's so much drama away from the actual attempted ascent. Because like one guy almost dies with a fractured skull and another is swept away by an avalanche and the third one has this ridiculously tragic story about watching his climbing partner die in front of him and then he ends up marrying the guy's widow it's just insane all this stuff that's going on so that's a pretty cool documentary it's called meru m-e-r-u so that's a good one from the same filmmakers as meru is free solo which is on disney plus and this was a very high profile Oscar winning, I think it won an Oscar, documentary about this dude called Alex Honnold, who plans, is basically watching him plan to climb El Capitan, which is basically a sheer 3000 foot cliff. He wants to climb it without any ropes. He is going to climb it free solo. So that just means he climbs up with just his shoes and his hands. And it's a sheer cliff, 3,000 feet. And a bit of chalk on. I'm assuming he doesn't do it in a skirt blowing up over his face. <laughs> I, I really, there's something about free climbing that when I've, when I've watched like just see, sequences of people doing it in like over the years, it makes my feet sweat. It, I get so nervous yeah, watching it that so I can't. Weird. It it's makes really my hands weird. and feet sweat. I can't it's see really, it. That's, it's crazy that you mentioned because I literally in my notes, I said, I said, I was watching it in bed and my feet were sweating. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, it's possibly the most terrifying film I've ever seen because it's just it, like you're watching this stuff. And there's there's one particular part called the boulder problem because they've got these all these like little nicknames for all the different parts of the climb. And there's this one part called the boulder problem. And the reason why it's called the boulder problem is because it's basically a gap that he has to get from one boulder to another halfway up this ridiculous cliff. And you basically either have to jump it or you have to perform a kind of karate kick to get to the next rock. And you watch him doing this over and over again, practicing with ropes. And every time he just falls. So and then, of course, he gets to the actual thing and it's like, what is he going to do now? So, yeah, absolutely terrifying. That's called Free Solo. Uh, and that's well worth the watch as well. So, um, yeah, some good ones. Yeah. So. That was my, they're my recommendations if you fancy watching some pretty crazy stuff. High altitude shit. Yeah, yeah that is, like I said, we don't normally cover uh, documentaries on the show, but sometimes we delve into them. Um, I'm not going to talk about it now because I only watched the third part, but I, I watched the Get Back documentary, the first two thirds. Um, oh, yes. And it's good. It's, it's very good. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, well, another film I watched and I was quite surprised by was Hard Target 2. Wow, okay. That's right, didn't expect that, did you? Um, it's, I watched it possibly because it stars Scott Adkins, who knows. Um, I was sitting there and I was, I was in the bedroom and I, I, I've been very, as, as my voice in the last podcast will attest, I've been ill for like a weirdly long time with a chest infection. And I was, it was when I was ill, I just thought, <clears throat> I want to watch something that like, if I fall asleep into the sweet, blessed blackness, then at least I, I won't wake up and think, oh, I missed that. And I was really enjoying it. So I thought, oh, I'll just check on, um, I'll just check on Hard Target 2. And um, this has, although it's obviously similar to, to the 1993 Hard Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme, it, it, it felt like it had more similarities to Surviving the Game, that 1994 film with Rutger Hauer and Ice-T. Mm. And Charles Dutton. <coughs> and Lance Henriksen. 
<laughs> so yeah, it's um, even the surprisingly like, good surviving the game. Yeah, which everyone should seek out. And I think that's going to be a primer, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's even got like the father son hunter thing going on, mm. like it does in that film. So yeah, this is a this is a sequel to Hard Target. It doesn't reference it really at all. It's just the same sort of setup. Um, uh, which is, I'll just, I just want to talk about the start, which is a, a slight spoiler in a second. So the, the, it basically Scott Adkins plays a, a professional fighter called Wes Baylor who kills someone in the ring and he gets full of guilt and he just goes to, I think it's somewhere in like Thailand to fight in dirty fights and just drink himself away. Um, and he gets picked up by uh, so, like this sort of um, American millionaire who says, oh, you know, we want you to come and fight for us sort of thing. And then when he when he turns up to this this sort of a place, everyone pulls out a load of guns and says, look on then off your trap, mate. And uh, he, he realizes that he's it's just a human hunt for him. A um, few things. Um, the, the fight at the start, um, it, this is a very slight spoiler, but it's quite early on, you find out. He has this pretty well choreographed fight with a with a someone called Johnny Sutherland uh, in a in this like really big televised bout, and he kills him in the ring. And we find out that mm. actually they were best friends and sparring partners. And it's not guilt so much for killing him, but for like leaving his his wife a widow and mm. you know the child. Um, that's the that he killed his best friend basically. The problem is that doesn't really make sense because if you think back to the fight that you saw, he really brutally beats him to death i mean it's not like i mean if you and i were like fighters and we sparred all the time if we got into a situation where say i i started to win the fight and you clearly couldn't defend yourself and your wife was at ringside shouting stop stop and then for two or three minutes i just kept on kicking and punching you in the head until you were dead Mm -hmm. that's not so much winning a fight as like attacking someone in like a blind visceral rage and and it's like so it would have made more sense if it was like an accidental punch because it just it's not believable because he really does like go at him totally utterly basically deliberately kills him yeah so and it's it doesn't it's like they kind of retconned it or something anyway Mm. um so yeah, that's odd. And the other thing is the, the whole film does this, and this happens, I guess, in a lot of films where it's made out that like you know th- these 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 people hunting hunting him, it's like they're all from like special forces and whatever, and the police, and they, you know this is the ultimate and this is a real test, absolute test of of, of strength, mano or mano, you know. Um, he's got a good chance of fighting back. And but at the start of the film, they all take up this this high tech weapon, you know, these tracking devices, and he tries to pick up a pistol, and they say no. And they just give him a bottle, an empty bottle that he can put water in. I thought it's not really a test then, is it? Because not only is he like he's not from the special forces or, you know, a SEAL team. He's just an MMA fighter, like a retired, effectively MMA fighter. Mm-hmm. So, again, it would make more sense and there'd be more stakes if if that was, you know, if the stakes were any he, he, was more of a threat than like I'm just someone who fights in a ring professionally. Yeah. Um, apart from that, it's actually quite good. It's really, it's really pacey. The the action sequences, the set pieces are quite nice. It's quite a beautiful film because obviously it's like filmed in Thailand. Um, I'm guessing it wasn't John Woo who directed this. No, it was um, Roll Roll Rain. Who, if you look on in, on IMDb, he basically does sequels that for films you think, oh, I didn't know there was a sequel to that. Um, <laughs> I, I I look at you, The Marine Two, Death Race Two, Scorpion King Three. Death Race 3, 12 Rounds 2, and my favourite, oh, The Condemned 2, and my favourite one, um, 
because I thought I not only have I not heard of this film, I've not heard of this series, and there's apparently fourteen of them or something. Seal Team Eight behind enemy lines. Bloody so, hell. so I'm gonna have to watch Seal Team One to Seven to like catch up with the narrative. But um, yeah, I gotta say like Scott Adkins, this is one of Scott Adkins because as we know, the quality of his films can really veer from like his absolute best being um, Avengement, which is clearly the best film he's made, down to something like Incoming, which is just him sitting in a corridor with plucked eyebrows playing with a carpet. <laughs> Where is this available? This was on uh, Netflix. Really? No. Sounds so, like a prime all over it, to be honest. I know. Go. I'm trying to. I'm sure it was Netflix. Uh, once again, I've just got this like a blind spot in my brain for remembering where I watch things. But yeah, it's. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Netflix. And Hard Target too. Like regardless of whether you like the first one or not, it's just it's just a decent action film. And mm. it, because it was made in like 2014, there's like a bit of money. It's on location. It's not in a bloody industrial estate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When was it made? It's 2014 the 20, oh, 2016 2016 sorry right so 23 years after the original okay <laughs> naturally everyone was crying out for our <laughs> the, the golden the golden length of time 23 years for a sequel i venture that possibly this guy was the director's name roll rain roll rain i venture that perhaps he's receiving these scripts and then they're just deciding what what brand what franchise branding to put on it that the script probably hasn't got anything to do with the original at all and they're just thinking oh what does it most resemble uh oh, yeah. hard target that yeah, be this, cheap. Is, this is hard they could have called it surviving the game too and it would have it would have actually fit better really yeah um but yeah it's quite it's quite visceral it's yeah i, I enjoyed it it's a, it's a decent action film Good. Okay. Um, well, let me. Uh, we'll stick with Netflix, and I'll talk about Wrong Turn. Oh, nice. Um, Wait, there now. That one or that one or that one? I I lost track of which ones are called Wrong Turn. This is a 2021 remake. This is the, the one. Th- this is the one I watched and talked about. So I'm keen. This is the one where they handle the initial village really poorly and then they when a load of tree logs roll towards them they run yes. downhill as opposed to sideways yes yes i've seen this. yes 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 i remember this yeah okay so i mean obviously we talked about it a bit before um just to recap um there's kind of concurrent plot lines so you've got matthew modine searching virginia for his missing daughter um and then there's the story of that daughter and her friends running into trouble in the backwoods, yeah, including a load of logs. There's also a sequence where Matthew Medine is just driving around Canada trying to find um, David Cronenberg to say, I'm starting to look like you. <laughs> Genuinely, he's got that kind of like, he's got that kind of broad chin, thin neck thing going on, isn't he? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so they take a wrong turn when they step off the trail. It hasn't really got that much to do with the original, I'd have to say. Again, it's just really using the branding, isn't it? Um, because this is totally different. Because um, obviously in the original, it was like cannibalistic hicks. And then this time, it's like a Scandinavian Viking-like clan living like it's the 19th century. Um, <laughs> the film takes, yeah, it takes a massive and absurd turn right in the middle kind of pseudo thought-provoking turn in the middle yeah but it's actually yeah. really stupid and makes no sense <laughs> but i'd have to say it with some convincing dialogue and better production design and better direction and better cinematography it could have been quite a 
dark and harrowing twist. But it does look very cheap, I thought. I thought it has a very TV uh, aesthetic. I, I found as well from the, the, the scene set and from the initial sequence when they, the, the, you know, the sort of hicks approach them in that bar. Yeah. And they basically tried to, so they just really smarmy to them. And, yeah. And, but, but it's almost like the script is, it's like the point of the script was to say, oh, look, they're actually just like, they're just saying that they're just normal people. But they come across as complete wankers. Yeah, I wasn't wankers. sure. I, I mean... In retrospect, I won. I kind of tried to make excuses for the film, thinking, were they actually meant to be tosses in there? Because they were really smugly, basically just announcing their employment credentials to these working class men in a bar. And it actually wins them the argument. It's like, hang about. This is just the, the most smarmy tosses I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So, um, uh, other things I noticed was that um, I saw a baby crying upstairs. Oh, that's um, nice. Hit him with a toffee hammer. <laughs> it's time to get the cow pull out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I did find it... I, I, I found it very fast-moving and unpredictable, so that part was good. But, like, the characters in the movie, just they just changed their entire worldview on a sixpence, and none of their actions or motivations make any sense. And they seem to act entirely according to film logic rather than real world rules. And I, that's why it's unpredictable. It's not because it's like crafty or it has these well-considered plot developments. It's just they don't the, – the actors – sorry, the characters are acting as if they're in a movie. It's one of those sorts of movies. Yeah. So I kind of admire how ambitious the film is in terms of how much stuff it tries to squeeze in. And all of the different horror subgenres it attempts to tackle, but it's not a good movie, I wouldn't say. It's trying and it's unpredictable, but it's really only worth a watch to witness this sort of overreaching mess with some nasty kills in it. Yeah, and and, and, and to watch Matthew Modine. Of Matthew Modine, yeah, who I need, do need to see in more films. He was in that awful film. Um, I watched about the. I talked about it a couple of months ago, where where Sylvester Stallone is apparently trying to find money that was buried like 20 years ago, and he's clearly and they come in to shut down this operation, saying you clearly don't know where the money is, Sly, and he's like, no, no, we're on the cusp. And I thought it's been 20 years, and you literally have made no progress, and you've got a team of six people working on it full time, and all you've got is a whiteboard <laughs> with like some pictures of like the robbers on there, is that you've done nothing. Um, <laughs> it's just yeah, we, we're on this as well, like you say about the characters flipping on a dime there's i remember that sequence where matthew medine gets sort of a, a local hunter and he walks up to him and his son and says look you need to take me up to this village and yeah. he's like no 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 mate not doing that not doing that at all never doing that we'll never do that go away not doing it and then matthew medine says i'll oh, go on he says all right then i will yeah <laughs> and then he's matthew gone two, two minutes later it doesn't I, i'm pretty sure the film doesn't establish him as having any kind of military background whatsoever and yet, and yet, when it comes to the crunch, he seems remarkably uh, capable. courageous and capable um, and handy with guns all of a you, sudden. You are forgetting a sequence in the film where he's in the bar and he's musing and talking to the waitress. And she says, oh, have you got a military background? And he says, I have, actually. Um, I used to hand out the sandwiches on the helicopter. Um, and, what, and I came up with the idea, really impressed everyone, because the sandwiches would blow away because of the blades, I sellotape them to the plates. <laughs> and she says, oh, OK, that's really impressive. <laughs> really thinking outside the box. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's not particularly good. 
Yeah. Not really, yeah, it hasn't really got anything to do with the original it, rom com it, either. It does, it does feel like a valiant failure because it's one yes. of those films as well that when you watch it, whether you like it or not, you if you if you think about it after the fact, a lot of problems come to mind in the yes. in the plot logic. So you can't even just kind of go with it. Um, <clears throat> like I thought you pushed all the list of films you pushed to one side, talk about the remake of Wrong Turn, which mm-hmm. you came to the conclusion was okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I watched The Condemned, which is a film I've seen before. Uh, which th- this is a film that's interesting, possibly on, only to me in in the rewatch because so this is a film. Uh, it's basically like Battle Royale, um, where it stars Stone Cold Steve Austin, the the retired wrestler, even at the time in 2000, uh, 2007, mm-hmm. and he gets dropped along with like ten other convicts on this. Uh, sort of island. It's being run by a billionaire who keeps on talking about the internet. Oh, everyone's gonna pay to watch this on the internet bollocks the tv and i'm going to win billions and he's like you already have billions i'm not entirely sure why you're going through this risk like doing this in um sort of ungoverned waters being chased by all these governments just to like get a bit more money when it's clearly just you're just going to get arrested the second you leave the island because of uh, the scape the scope of it um so yeah this is directed by scott wiper who acted in films like um pearl harbor um mm-hmm. of course he also directed the marine three and four but um so yeah when i watched this film originally probably in like 2007 2008 i didn't like it and i didn't like it because i i think it's it, it's not as action-packed as you would think and and, and the, the violence when it happens is quite is quite intense and brief um and i remember watching it and just it just expecting more and just thinking you know this is Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vinnie Jones I I wanted I wanted more and it it didn't get it and I watched it recently because I've been listening to the Stone Cold Steve Austin podcast and I do like him mm. as a person he's, he's quite a quite a sort of weirdly noble man and I was so I was um I watched it again and I preferred it this time because my expectations were lowered because I wasn't expecting a high octane massive budget thing this is produced by WWE films and um and I and I realized that the because it's not like lots of intense shootouts. It's more of just like him, just you know all these sort of um this characters. You know, Vinnie Jones is like the the English bad guy. You've got the Japanese guy who doesn't speak English but is good at kung fu, and you've got you know a couple who just want to sort of stay together. Um, and there's a touch as well of wedlock with Rutger Hauer, where in everyone's got a bomb around their ankle. And if you diddle around with it, then it just blows you to bits. Um. Interestingly, the fight choreography in this was coordinated by Richard Norton, who you will remember as the amazing antagonist in Jim Carter in 1985. Yes, yes. Uh, what a man. Whenever the man pops up in a film, I'm happy. So, yeah, it, it's, it is okay, but it's just got this weird mean streak because it's like right, Stone Cold Steve Austin, right? The, the, the you know, he has a limited range in terms of an actor. In the, and, and I mean, his range is he either laughs sarcastically or he's frowning. That's it. That is it. That is two speeds. Probably in real well, life as well. It is a range, I suppose. Um, so Vinnie Jones is obviously good at being like a, a real nasty wanker, which is fine. That's you know that's what he's there for. Mm. And the, and the film is wonderfully ridiculous. Um, but yeah, it's got this really weird mean streak in it. Like considering it's just a, a, a silly action film where you know ten people are dropped off, the survivor you know gets their freedom sort of thing. Mm. It'll it'll have these sequences of really foul sequences where um it, it'll like it'll 
just have like there's there's a sort of slightly off camera like extended rape sequence and you're like no did that need to be in the film Mm. Uh, and and it kind of removes it from an enjoyable action film to think you know you've obviously got like ideas about your station delivered really badly i look at you death wish 2 and Mm. and there's a there's also a sequence at the start where um they're trying to get information about steve austin who they sort of dragged in last minute as a replacement and he's saying you know where are you from and he's like oh i'm from a little town in alaska called fuck your mama and like all these silly jokes and then the guy who's writing him saying i'll just tell everyone he's like a kiddie rapist then and and you're like "Mm, these you didn't need to go there you didn't need to like bring these like awful sort of um, images to our minds for for this like pretty silly action film that's quite sort of capable as a low budget offering. So surprises me that I would have thought being produced by WWE, I thought it would have been a bit more wholesome than that. No, I don't know because they did. Um, I remember one of the films was called I think it's called See No Evil and it starred Kane the wrestler Glenn Jacobs. And I remember that being quite visceral and miserable as well. And I don't know mm-hmm. if, like with WWE films, they're trying to like as as the the wrestling product gets more family child friendly, mm. that they they try to make the films like as almost like really nasty to sort of right. separate them because they they really don't fit together. And like yeah. you know, like I, I guess the average like wrestling. Not, not that I'm saying wrestling fans are young, but it's marketed towards like you know teens with the t-shirts and the dolls and everything. Certainly has a, fa- a certain family friendly image. Yeah, and then you know like they don't allow blading and bleeding anymore, that sort of thing. So it's actually getting slightly milder in that context. But then you've got the films, which I mean I'm not. This is obviously like 14 years ago. I'm not sure what they're like now, but they they're quite nasty. The ones I've seen are quite nasty and like sort of heavy duty. So it is a it is a bit of a weird one, but it is a good. It's a solid, like, you know, mid-budget action film. On Prime? On Prime. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I paid for a film on Prime. Um, You know that's against the rules, Rupert. I don't know why you keep doing (laughs) it. But it's, I I thought it's time. I finally watched the one John Carpenter film I haven't seen, which is Village of the Damned. So I had to watch it. Um, Have you seen this? It, um, is this the is this the remake of a sixties one? I I don't know. Yeah. I've, which is the one with all the kids with blonde hair? Yes, that is this. I mean, it was what was the original one? The original book was called the Midwich. I want to say the Midwich Cuckoos. Is that right? Anyway, Village of the Damned, nineteen ninety five. John Carpenter obviously passed his heyday. This is often seen as the beginning of the decline, really. Um, I suppose this would have been just after The Mouth of Madness. Uh, and w- like Christine, this was a contract job for Carpenter, as far as I know. But unlike Christine, it's not especially good. Um, okay. It's got a really cool cast. Christopher Reeve in his last theatrical film. Uh, it's got Kirstie Alley, Michael Pare, Mark Hamill, and, of course, Paul Hogan's wife, Linda Kozlowski. Um, so Reeve... He plays a doctor. Castiali plays an epidemiologist. Kozlovsky plays a head teacher. Hamill plays a priest. Um, and basically, the whole town of Midwich uh, one day just faints. And then they wake up and they piece their lives back together. And then they realize that a bunch of the women are pregnant and they all became pregnant on the day of the blackout. So there is some concern in the community about this. Does all any the baby- of the husbands, do they call their wives slags and leave them? <laughs> yeah. Um, they all do, yeah. Uh, no, all, uh, but all the babies are born on the same day, alarmingly. And uh, now Kirstie Alley steals one of them, pretending it was a stillbirth, um, so she can experiment on it. Um, yeah, 
and it quickly becomes apparent that she may possibly be behind the whole experiment. I, I like how the film doesn't bother pretending that Kirstie Alley is like a good guy and then delivering it as a twist. We just see the whole experiment play out while the locals and the parents are oblivious. Um, and so these strange white haired kids grow up and their eyes start turning green and they start psychically triggering the adults to harm themselves and indeed kill themselves. Um, so that's where the horror element comes in. Um, the music is by John Carpenter and Dave Davis from the Kinks. So there's a <laughs> lot of acoustic guitar. It's quite nice. Um, there's something really amusing about watching these kind of like a wholesome cornbread middle-class parents side-eyeing their own weird children. <laughs> I found it quite funny. I, I, and I do think John Carpenter nails the tone. It's got this kind of soapy quality to it, but with this X-Files-like hokiness, and it's knowingly absurd. And there are some quite fun, elaborate kills. Um, the problems are really with the script, which is functional at best. And there are issues with the editing which feels it feels like it's like editing a, a TV series, really, because there's this unclear passage of time sometimes. Like sometimes characters will be like in one extreme state in one scene and then it will like cut and they're somewhere else entirely in a completely different emotional state, like as if an ad break basically should have existed there. Like, but there's no gap sort of thing. So it's really odd. It's really oddly um, constructed. It is not classic Carpenter, but um, it does have just enough personality to distinguish itself. Like it's more interesting than say Ghosts of Mars or The Ward, which were enjoyable enough, but didn't really, weren't recognizably John Carpenter films. But I'd say, I say this just about has enough personality to make it. So not a complete write off, but I can, it definitely is, not the best script he's worked with and it is the beginning of the decline i think i i I, reading up about it it sounds like you know he he did it he did it for an easy job he knew where he was going to film it in california he knew the places and it it sounds pretty easy sounds like an easy job for him really but the results are a little bit bland unfortunately on the screen so what's this 1995 or something is it 95 yeah so just after and then was the next one then 98 with vampires? Yeah, which I think is better than this. Mm. But which mm. and even even that film isn't ideal, is it? No. Um, yeah. Okay. I I may have seen this, but it's the fact that I it's a John Carpenter film. I may have seen and I cannot remember anything about. I suppose speaks for itself. Yeah. So. It is kind of forgettable, unfortunately. Um, I, I've got a I've got a two minute trashing. Um, I I put this on. It's a film called Reach Me. Um, which is apparently a drama film. Uh, and it's one of those films, kind of like 200 cigarettes or whatever, where it's like a lot of vignettes that sort of tie together in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it is one of the worst films I've ever seen. Mm. The, the, the cast is astonishing. I'll just quickly pound through it. You've got <gasps> Sylvester Stallone, Kyra Cedric, Thomas Jane, Kelsey Grammer, Kevin Connolly, Tom Berenger, Nelly, Terry Crews, Danny Trio, Danny Aiello, Ryan Quanton, David O'Hara, Tom Sizemore, Carrie Elways. But... It's they're all in these sort of little vignettes that tie together, and the the reach mm. me is is this. It's all based around this <clears throat> self help book written by this mysterious figure that is sort of um, 
it's taken over you know everyone's worlds basically where they just all follow this book and finding their best selves and mm-hmm. and it, the film is sort of ostensibly about uh, uh i think i can't remember I'm not sure the guy's name uh, oh kevin connolly um it's not someone i've really seen before who is trying to track down the the writer of the book because he's a journalist and he wants to have the the big story he eventually finds out that the writer of the book is tom berenger a scarf sporting safari jacketed man who just wanders around california just curing people of their their habits and that's what um that's what kicked off the book but he's mm-hmm. he's got this like sort of crippling social shyness um it it's just full of people obviously either because the director in a safe has got a picture of them putting their thumb up their bum and then in someone else's mouth or because it was an easy payday there's no other reason why these people would be in this film mm. um thomas jane plays a cop who just wears these everything about the film reeks of the film thinking it's really hip and cool this is like mm. 2000 i want to say 2008 or 2014 oh my god that's unforgivable um mm. thinking it's hip and clever and witty and it just really falling flat at every possible turn um so if, even like thomas jane is this 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 um cop who basically solves every problem he comes into by just sort of cowboying it and shooting everyone and he keeps on going to danny aiello to um to sort of confess his sins and cleanse his soul and he says you have to put your gun away and stop shooting ever basically and, and but then we follow daniello for a bit and he's you know everyone thinks he's this good wholesome priest but he's um action alcoholic and then he meets kara Sedgwick, who's just out of prison and it goes on like this and and the film boils down to i was thinking what how is how are they going to explain tom berenger's skill then of mm. of he's this like sort of ultimate healer that can it can bring the goodness out of everyone and the the way they show it is he meets this journalist that's tracking him down and says can you not tell everyone my name so i just get famous because i've got this crippling social shyness and the guy smokes and the way he cures him rupert is he takes him to a beach and he makes him shout at the horizon my name is roger king and i don't smoke all night until the morning and then he suddenly just doesn't want to smoke well, because he probably went to bed then, didn't he? He probably said, I'm too tight to smoke. I'm, I'm going to feel sick because I haven't eaten. I'm going to go home and have a vocal zone and then black out. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the whole film just comes across as really smug. And you've got people like um, Kelsey Grammer turned up to do a little bit of swearing where, as a mafia boss. And it just it just felt like a load of people having much more fun than I was mm. watching it, which is a crime. And it is I mean, a much easier payday anyway. Where's it? Um, where's it set? Uh, I, I guess it's California. It's a very so sort of basically where city. all these people live. Live, okay. yes, yeah, and it, yeah, it's it comes across as an easy payday. There's bizarrely with with Sylvester Stallone. There's especially a scene where he plays uh, Kevin Connolly's. He's, he's the head of the newspaper he works for, and he's constantly monologuing, but these like really bollocks monologues. But 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 it's framed in such a way, like the way the camera is moving, that that we're supposed to really be taking this in as you know this is this is you know this is very prescient stuff and he just basically just shouts at people like there's a he keeps on talking to uh kevin connie saying you need to be hungry and, and all this sort of stuff you need to work for it you need to be the best you need to push everyone aside and then there's a scene where uh, the, the the journalist walks into his studio uh sylvester Stallone studios he's painting this really vaginal picture and then he just turns around and starts shouting at him, saying, oh, you know, you should know not to walk in here. And then he just shouts at him. And at the end of the film, then he talks to Tom Berenger and he sort of reveals that he's got this soft side in a really 
unpleasant way. And mm-hmm. and and then the the camera kind of lingers on him as if we're supposed to think, oh, that's a character arc. <laughs> and I thought, no, it's not, is it? It's not a character arc. So yeah, it's one of the worst films I've ever seen, and it's really it's yeah. really re- repugnant and self indulgent. And it's called Reach Me. I think it's also called something else, but I can't even be bothered to find out what that is on IMDb. <laughs> that does sound like an alternative title, to be fair. Uh, so yeah, that's that's that. Jeez. Okay. Where would we watch that? That's Were on we Net- so inclined. That's on Netflix. Of course it is. Um, all right. I, I, I'll, I'll very quickly um, recommend a film called Unstoppable, which is on Disney Plus, which was Tony Scott's last film. Oh, okay. And it's one of his better movies, as a purely visceral experience. But then. That's all Tony Scott really does is visceral experience, visceral experiences. So Chris Pine plays a rookie train conductor. Denzel Washington is soon to be laid off. He's his mentor. Uh, an error results in a train with a toxic cargo uh, basically just charging off on the loose. It's a runaway train. And there are various tragic attempts made to stop and derail it. Um, so... Denzel and Chris Pine, as rogue train dudes, they take matters into their own hands um, and basically go to chase it down and try to stop it as it's like careering down the tracks. The, the characters are pretty standard tropes. So you have like the, the green rookie, the assertive veteran. You get the the various technical experts. You get the greedy businessman looking out for the profit. Um and you get constant news reports to let us know what's going on. But it's all about technical craft, really, and maintaining suspense and excitement. And it's it's a relentless movie. Um, and it's just that, like, the sound design is hilariously over the top. Like, the sound that the, the train makes is, is cr- like, careening down the tracks. Just a constant roar and screeching of metal. It sounds like a living creature. It's ridiculous. But it's effective. <laughs> And the performances are are solid. Dialogue is believably technical. And the editing is very, very good. It's a very watchable movie. It's not deep, but it is singular in purpose. And it it, it wants to be a white knuckle ride and it does succeed. So is is this a film? um, Because Denzel Washington was in another film about a subway train. It was a remake of another film, wasn't it? The taking of Pelham one, two, Thank, three. Yeah, yeah. And I've got a feeling that I didn't watch Unstoppable because I'd seen the taking of Pelham one, two, three, and I assumed it was just an alternate title or something. <laughs> so I might actually watch. No, this it. is very different. That was much more. That was because that was more about the kind of uh, negotiation, wasn't it? This is just yeah. a pure visceral action movie, really. Hmm. But it's just got likable leads, and yeah, it's pretty predictable. But. <laughs> It's interesting it's with Denzel way. Washington, isn't it? That like he, you know, he's celebrated as this sort of, you know, generations one of the greatest actors, but he's sometimes just in really enjoyable trash. Oh yeah, like yeah, yeah. really. Well, he elevates like film, trash. Yeah, like definitely. that film Out of Time I watched. It was like one of my favorite films, and I of, of you know of that period. And I thought I've never. It just seems like such a throwaway film, but it's just yeah, again him elevating it and yeah. making it making it good. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what happens here. You know exactly what you're going to get with him as like a veteran train driver sort of thing. You know all this stuff, you know. Um, he does that. He could do that shit in his sleep, you know. Um, can I 
quickly talk about Black Rain as well, please? <laughs> oh my God, please. Where is this? Where is this available? I, I, I had to pay for this one as well on Prime. Well, I had to watch it though. With I'm cash sure. money? Yeah, it was. It was. I think it was like a special day. They're doing like one ninety nine deals. Uh, um, so I thought, well, I have to watch it really. Um, this was directed by Ridley Scott in eighty nine, and it's really Ridley Scott doing Tony Scott, frankly. And it, I think it's a bit of an underrated gem, I have to say. So Andy Garcia and Michael Douglas play New York cops who unironically call each other babe, huh. and. <laughs> They arrest this Yakuza criminal um, and then they're instructed to accompany him back to Japan. They mess it up over there, handing the suspect to basically the very first Japanese people in suits that they see. They just hand them over. It's like, that's not the right people. So anyway, so now they're in Osaka and they've got to retrieve their perp with the help of the local police. They get dragged deeper and deeper into the mob underworld and into this gang rivalry about forged banknotes. And uh, I really like the sense of them being really overconfident and then gradually realising they're totally out of their depth. Um, Kate Capshaw rocks up um, and Douglas instantly makes a beeline for her because she's hot and she turns out to be a handy translator, so that's good. Um, And she's quite a cool character, actually, because her character's strong and confident, but also slightly removed um she's almost like someone they go to for information sort of things it's not really integral as such so um, she's a better character than in temple of doom then yes she's a little bit yes she's a little bit more useful than she was in that movie um it the, in terms of style black rain it's fantastically dated like the hair the clothes the music the physical banknotes michael douglas smoking on a plane and just cops just punching suspects for the sake of it. Brilliant. <laughs> the lack of lighting in every room in this movie and the depth of the filters is astonishing. The endless smoke. It could be Blade Runner. It's so dark and moody. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Michael Douglas's character in particular is, is really belligerent, really uncooperative and refuses to take responsibility for fundamental errors. <laughs> and it's ridiculous, but it does make the interactions quite amusing. It also gives Andy Garcia something to do because he's basically the mediator between Michael Douglas and the local detectives. There is racism directed at Japanese cops and culture, but it is returned back at them. And the whole thing about the whole kind of overarching point of it, the film about learning humility in the face of a culture you don't understand Um and and with Michael Douglas's character learning a sense of honour, um, I think it outweighs that stuff. I mean, the point of Michael Douglas being a racist asshole is to establish his character and give him, uh, give his character a place to go in terms of his humility. So I think it makes sense. And I just think I think really Scott's really on top form in terms of the style, like the the depth of his framing is just gorgeous. Like some of the club scenes in that, or, or like when, when the characters are walking down an empty street and they're just silhouetted against this blazing neon, it just looks amazing. And the film has amazing lines such as sometimes you've got to forget your head and grab your balls. What a, what a ridiculously macho line. Brilliant. <laughs> and um, so overall it's aged pretty well. <laughs> it's kind of cheesy, but, delightfully stylish very doom laden and it's just a classy 80s action thriller i can only think the reason why it's not quite in that pantheon of 
go-to 80s action thriller is because it's a bit more bit more cerebral a bit slower not that not that many action scenes as such more of a cop thriller i suppose so like rising sun then with sean connery and Rosalind. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I'm going to watch that again. I, I haven't seen that for a very, very long time. But it's I just well worth it. Um, I'm just reloading my Jack Daniels. Um, I'm going to talk about A Quiet Place Part 2. Um, oh, yeah. I haven't actually seen the first film. It was one that um, Faye, Faye watched and she was quite taken with. So I think this was popped up in what you just said on Amazon Prime, the 199 deals. So we, we leapt upon it. And... Um, so, yeah, I kind of got the gist of the first film just from what Faye has chatted about before and the little introduction. And, yeah, it's a bit of a two-minute trashing, really, because I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't really feel like there was as much to say about it. I, I, um, for, for those that aren't you know, aware of the, the, the setting of the movie is that uh, Emily Blunt and her family, including a newborn, that is tense, um, did... Uh, their world has basically been overtaken by these creatures that uh, react to sound. So I think in the first thing, they were basically living by a waterfall or something. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And she had to uh, give birth silently. That must have been, uh, as someone who's witnessed birth, I mean, yeah, I mean, she I, was I, gritting I, her teeth. <laughs> was, she, was she looking at her cuticles and inhaling through gritted teeth? Um, and yeah, and then in this in this film, uh, the husband's uh, passed away. I don't know how why I didn't see the first one, and they're just sort of... I can I could well that it was the reason the the reason he is not there anymore is because of a stupid ending to the first film. So. Oh right, okay then yeah, um, which yeah, didn't make any sense. Didn't have to die. Stupid. Yeah, there's a sequence actually in this where Emily Blunt's talking the elder son and he says, "Where's dad?" And she says, oh, I'm surprised you don't remember. Remember the shit ending to the first film? And oh, I remember now. Yeah, what a, what a lot of bollocks that was. <laughs> Good night, son. Um, so, and then... <laughs> and then they just all get slaughtered. Um, yeah. so, so, so this is... They, they're escaping the, the, the town, the city. And they're getting chased, and they get they're carrying the baby in this box with an oxygen tank in it, and they get uh, taken in by Killian Murphy's character, who is uh, just very weary of everyone because he's lost his whole family, and they're living in this sort of underground safe uh, thing that gets sealed off that they can hide in, but it's got limited oxygen in, and he's got an alarm, and basically it's the setup. Um, for like a lot of tense sequences, uh, yes. really, really like sort of silent tense sequences, and I, it was right up my street to be honest, because um, it's like you know everything that's foreshadowed with like the oxygen, it's all like yeah. zoomed in on what you need to remember, and it's just mm. these set set pieces that are really really tense, and because it's such a clear cut premise that you you kind of know exactly where you are at all times, and th- there's something about Killian Murphy that. I like him a lot as an actor, and I feel mm-hmm. in he's in a lot of thrillers and stuff that that fly under a lot of radars, but he's always he's just got this like weird intensity, and mm-hmm. I like I liked how because obviously they can't just have like really long monologues that it just just through like sort of whispered conversations and just maybe like a shrugging of the shoulders or like a just sort of looking off slightly, you 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 get exactly where his mindset is because he's obviously such a good actor he can just just sort of um uh just tell us um and i liked how each set piece felt um controlled and small in scale 
you know, it never just felt like, oh, this is just stupid now. It was, it was, you know, it's like you were, you the audience, you know the premise. This is the situation they're in. This is what's happening. Now just like hide behind the pillow until it's sorted out. And um, I, yeah, I, I really they're all kind it. of like problem solving type set pieces, aren't they, really? Yes. It, it's not, it's not like, oh, you know, we're bumbling along and all of a sudden, oh my God, here's the queen of the monsters. And it, yeah, can, yeah, yeah. it can, it can see as, you know, none of that nonsense. It's just like these little, like you say, problem solving. And, um, I like the, the fact this title part two, I, Faith thought the ending was quite sort of, she was like, oh, I would have liked to see a bit more or like get mm. it, get, get like, um, maybe more of a, a denouement or something. But I thought, well, I'm assuming there's going to be a third part because it kind of feels like this could run a little bit because it's just about yeah. ba- basic tension and twisted, um, uh, twisted situations and, and family scenes we can all kind of relate to. Then it feels yeah. like this would have legs. It feels like there's a lot of gas in the tank. Yeah, it does. I I hope that there is another one. I mean, I know that this was one of the... I don't know what... It may have come out just before the lockdown, so maybe it just... It was rescued by that. I'm not sure, but it was, you know, it was around lockdown time, so I hope it did okay. I hope it did well enough. I mean, maybe maybe enough people have seen it now anyway. I mean, I suppose they're going to look at streaming figures and stuff, can't they? When, when it's worth it. like seeing the like the palpable excitement on face face when we were going to watch this, I I yeah. thought well I've, I you know obviously I know the premise and it's easy enough to follow, yep. but I I can see now it's one of those the rare horror films where I think yeah I actually I would I would really look forward to a part three because yeah it's it seems like that like is it John Krasinski has really got yes. a handle handle on it and it's full of like very capable actors that yeah. I can yeah jump on board with it. I prefer it to the first one to be honest. I do. Is is that will people be upset about those words, Rupert? Um, I know. I mean, the first one's very well loved. Um, I know it's not a bad film, but I just think the second one's better because it doesn't have that silly ending. Um, I'm gonna have to read uh, up on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I it strikes me in thinking about it. Uh, like when it, you you mentioned like Killian Murphy, he's got a very distinctive look, and I suppose. In a way, him and um, Emily Blunt, they've one thing, one specific thing about their appearance is their eyes, because they've got very distinctive eyes. And I, and I suppose it makes sense to cast people like that, because they're doing so much acting just with a kind of glare, you know, or yeah. a glance. So I did like Killy Murphy's character in this. He's such a broken person, and yet, yeah, he develops yeah. in an interesting way. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's good. And that was on Prime, and that was on a deal, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah, one ninety nine on Prime. I don't know if it's still there, but um, yeah, it was definitely worth two quid. Okay, well, I'll stick with uh, John Krasinski. Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I watched a film called Thirteen Hours. Uh, I watched this on Rakuten, the worst streaming service, and <laughs> um, this is the true story. Um, this is Michael Bay. I'll say that up front. It's a okay. true story about the debacle in Benghazi in Libya, where on September 11th, 2012, these waves of Islamic militants attacked this US diplomatic compound. And this sounds like something that Mr. Bay will handle with grace, (laughs) panache and and subtlety. subtlety, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So they have the dubious assistance of the local militia, but basically it's this small group of US military contractors who are holding out against this relentless assault. 
Um, it kind of reminiscent of something like Black Hawk Down, where it's a big old US military mess, basically. And it has that same macho disregard for any weak chinned bureaucrats that might be around. Um, a lot of the lines sound like they're written for the trailer, you know, like the, you get lines like, if you get ambushed, who rescues you? And things like that. And it's like, yes, yeah, okay, that sounds dramatic, but no one would actually say it. Um, so it's really, really macho. Um, you know what would say that without afterwards saying, and wiggling their fingers? Michael Bay, he he's not a storyteller. He... Uh, like the complexities of the diplomatic mission itself are lost basically and he has no time for pen pushes whatsoever which i think hurts the film because it makes it look one-dimensional in terms of his character and outlook so because basically if you're muscled and armed and you have a massive beard then you're in but anyone else don't even bother applying um it is quite a soulful performance from john krasinski i have to say and he is supported with the typically solid James Badgedale, so that's good. He's got a terrible, thunderous, drum-driven score. And the action scenes are very video gamey. Especially this there's this moment when they're transporting this ambassador through the streets um in this car. And it's like a slapstick car chase. There's like around every corner there's some new horror awaiting them, like an RPG or a Molotov there, bodies just ragdolling over the bonnet everywhere. It's preposterous. I don't believe it happened that way. Um so like Michael Bay, he's not he I mean I mentioned Black Hawk Down. He's not he's not interested in doing something in the style of like Black Hawk Down or Saving Private Ryan. It's not it's not ground level stuff really. There are loads of like swooping crane shots and stuff. He just he has to he adores like the vista of battle. And um I, I do have to say that once it settles into the basic uh, Salt and Prince 13 style action western stuff, it is kind of enjoyable in a purely pyrotechnic way. And I just don't think Michael Bay is a man to do justice to this very grim and serious event. And <laughs> And also, it doesn't really have the fear factor of something like uh, Assault and Precinct 13 because the US guys are so much more competent than their attackers. They're basically just the dubious pleasure of this all is just them mowing through endless droves of faceless soldiers, really. So it's fine as a kind of oorah combat picture, but, um, it, but in avoiding the political angle, it does come across as a bit generic. And... and it's one of those movies which where it's like based on real life events and yet it absolutely mines as many cliches as possible from the real world to so it comes across as very cheesy and formulaic um despite being based on an ostensibly true event but as a pure dumb action movie i kind of wish it wasn't based on a real event a real very serious tragic event because then I could have enjoyed it more just as a stupid, dumb action does, movie. Does it, does it come across as really disrespectful? Um, it comes across very uh, jingoistic and, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say disrespectful, really. I mean, I suppose it's true to an extent, but it's very one. I mean, they don't. They wouldn't dream of bothering to, you know, look at any other perspective but these 
bearded American guys, you know. So you don't really get a sense of the place at all. It's all about them, and it's all from their perspective. But you wouldn't expect anything else from Michael Bay. I watched a film I've I kind of really followed for a while, and then totally forgot about, it. and then it popped up. Uh, and I think it was like I did pay like cash money for this, but mm. it was one of those films that I thought I, I've I've been really wanting to watch this, and that is Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk, um, which is effectively the um, just a flip of John Wick. It's pretty much the same team behind it. So this is a film about where you know whereas with John Wick you've got someone who wants to sort of leave that life is 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 a a mythical figure that leaves wants to leave that life and gets dragged back into it over a series mm. of films which I watch very happily. This is a film where, where it's someone who's kind of done that, and but it kind of thirsts to get involved in it at uh, at the later stage in his life. So you've got Bob Odenkirk, who is a um, family man married to Connie Nielsen, uh, but their they, 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 they love life is sour. They sleep with pillows between them. They've got two children who kind of just really just don't respect him, and he's got a job in a, in a tedious company uh, where you know, no one really respects him, and he's kind of bullied, and he's really put down. Um, and he visits his father, played by Christopher Lloyd, who just sits watching old westerns all day, probably just waiting for the next Godfrey Holtham to pop on at two in the morning. Um, and and we find out through um, get down the cherry shop, really, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. and not on eBay. And and as as the film goes on, we realise there's obviously much more. They, they, there's a robbery in his in Bob Odenkirk's house, and he's just about to fight back, and then he just kind of it looks like he wimps out. Uh, and then as the film unfolds, we realise there's a lot more that meets the eye and a lot of history. And uh, he kind of drink, drinks in the opportunity to to get back into, into his old ways. Um, this is a film very much like John Wick, where it, the, the the pleasure is just in 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 having a, a very capable actor doing something that is just awesome to watch and is very visceral to watch and not, not massively effects driven. And is just a film where, you know, effectively a, a martial arts film where they just, when something kicks off, they're happy to just like pan back and just let you enjoy this beautifully choreographed uh, sequence that has obviously been, you know, running previews for weeks. Um, and I, I liked how without giving any spoilers, when he gets dragged back, back into his old life, the way that his family and especially his wife react to it isn't what you would think. Uh, you'd okay. think it would just be like a tedious halting block and you're like, oh, here we go. But it's actually dealt with in like a, uh, not a particularly unique way, but in like a, a, a sort of believable way. Okay. Uh, considering the stakes of what's going on because the the plot, the the, the burglary kicks off the, the film, but what really happens is that uh, he gets into a fight on a bus and he accidentally kills uh, a Russian boy or at least like puts him in a pretty bad situation and it turns out that his father is someone looking after this thing called the oh, I'm trying to see the word for it now, it's a very simple word that I can't remember, but basically it's uh, Obshak it's all of the money from the Russian mafia, which is constantly moved around. And it happens to be with this father at the moment. And Bob Odenkirk burns it, earning the ire of uh, pretty much everyone Russian in the world. And it's just him taking on the mob effectively. It's like wonderfully silly. And again, I would be more than happy, like we just said about A Quiet Place, like John Wick, for this to just have like five or six sequels. And I will happily mm. think I know what I'm in for. And it is, I realize now how much of a treat it is for um physical like martial arts uh 
close combat fans such as myself to just watch a film where you can see what's happening and you can really just enjoy the choreography, especially mm-hmm. after like listening to Scott Adkins um, uh, podcast where you know, they get into the nitty gritty of it because you realize how much goes into it. Um, and this just, this just really sort of sated me. And I know it's a film that I will just watch multiple times throughout my life. And yeah, I, I just hope there's a lot of sequels to be honest, because I'm more than happy for this to be a franchise, which is kind of the, you know, the polar, the inverse of John Wick and just let it go off on its own mythology as long as it has legs. Yeah, I've, uh, I, I'm glad this is good because I, I keep getting recommended it. Uh, which, what, what's it on? In, in text from me. Um, <laughs> I, I watched it on Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah, and it must be where I get, keep getting recommended it, yeah. So, um, but I I wasn't sure. I'm not, I mean, I know who well, Odenkirk is, but I'm not familiar with really is what what is he is he in better call soul or something yeah well obviously better call soul and breaking bad's on the savalis so it doesn't exist. yeah exactly so i don't know that. yeah so oh that's good that it is actually a good film yeah because... and i don't really apparently bob Odenkirk is a sort of are you still there sorry yes oh that was weird i hit my laptop and it went silent um oh. so oh, but historically bob Odenkirk is uh, a comedic actor but of course like whilst he's obviously got comedic timing in the moments in this film to me he's just like a slightly older man who's really yes. underwhelming looking so that was even better as far as i'm concerned because i've got no nostalgia or preconceptions of him yeah maybe so maybe that is a, a yeah benefit actually because i yeah i haven't seen breaking bad or better call soul so yes that might work actually so that's on prime yeah and it's very very good Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh. Well. Okay. Uh, sticking with Prime, then a Prime original called The Marksman. <clears throat> this is the one a, with Liam Neeson, isn't it? It is the one with Liam Neeson. Who, by I, the way? Yeah. He is beginning to look and sound like James Cromwell. He's got really? with his sort of like this inescapable Irish American, going on. His oh. southern accent in this film is not convincing. Um, I gotta say, right? Mm. This, this, you know, uh, over, over people listen to the podcast. Over the last few months, I watched about five or six Liam Neeson films because Faye, she, she really does like Liam Neeson. Mm-hmm. And I know that Laszlo Buckets enjoyed The Ice Road, uh, which is actually like incorrect. It's an incorrect viewpoint. <laughs> um, I, 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 I put this on, and I sat there, and after about ten minutes, I paused it, and I just said out loud, "No, no more Liam Neeson." <laughs> I have to have a break from these films. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm intrigued to what you're going to say anyway. Well, it it feels like uh, a Clint Eastwood movie because it's basically about this bereaved old tough guy on the border forced to help out this Mexican kid fleeing for his life, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I found out that Robert Lorenz, the director, did work as second unit director on a number of Clint Eastwood movies, so that makes oh, sense. Oh, wow, okay. So, yeah, so these this Mexican family are fleeing across the border, chased by gangsters. Liam Neeson ends up protecting the family and shooting one of the gangsters. Then he has a responsibility of protecting the boy. They want to take him back, and they want to kill Liam Neeson. So Liam Neeson's obviously ex-military etc so he takes the kid on a road trip to take him to chicago to his relatives um and the gangsters are in pursuit the main gangster looks like a hispanic dominic purcell by the way 
He does, is, he, does he look out the window through blinds at any point? No, there are no, there are no specific blind scenes, unfortunately. The, the, he is completely reckless. This guy, he just murders people in broad daylight in, with gay abandon. He doesn't care. He is just murdering people along the way. It's preposterous. Um, it's the film. It, it's yeah, technicalities. I mean, it, it's got this really overbearing atonal music. And it's got horrible sound design, really spongy gun effects for some reason. It looks cheap, um, just really unimaginative framing and flat lighting. It's unbelievably generic and predictable. Like the first half hour is a slog because it's such a procession of cliches, most of which are just bundled into Liam Neeson's character. So he's this bereaved, alcoholic, bitter, reluctant, old school hero. It's like, you know what's going to happen. And the biggest cliche of all is his warming relationship with the kid, because, of course, they're distrustful of each other. But, of course, they will grow close in the most obvious ways imaginable. And some of the wisdom that Liam Neeson um, bestows upon this boy. At one point, he says he literally says these words. Life doesn't always play out the way you expect. That's that's his wisdom. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The kid's like. Really? You got anything better than that? Well, he just, more he just, his resort wasn't just right. <laughs> oh my god! And there are endless, endless, really dull scenes of Liam Neeson on the phone to this border patrol agent, and basically, it will be her saying, "Where are you?" And he says, "I'm not telling you." And that's the whole dynamic. It's really tedious over and over again. They keep, and she's like, oh, where are you now? It's like, I'm still not telling you. And that's it. Brilliant. So it's typical straight to streaming stuff. Like it's the kind of thing that would once be straight to VHS and a blot on that actor's CV. But now it kind of just masquerades as some major new release. But it's not. It totally sucks. Yeah. It's the whole thing, isn't it? If they they put a trailer with a load of mm, <laughs> behind it on Netflix, think like, oh, oh this this would have been in the cinema. Speak to Mario Van Peebles about that. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, I know what you mean. They come on. The thing is, because there's no like rating system at all, much like the Nintendo Switch eShop, there's no yes. quality control. So yes. yeah, but the, the the thing is now we're we're reduced as viewers to just thinking, oh, I like that actor, yeah. and you know it's got dive bombing French horn section over the trailer, so surely this is going to have some sort of quality. Da, 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 da. No, no, no. So this is total bollocks, and I was right oh, to turn it off. Absolute shash, yeah. It's not, it hasn't got a, a single idea in his head. Terrible. That's the I, marksman. It's a prime original and it's terrible. Well, another prime original is Wrath of Man, directed by Guy Ritchie and starring my boy Jason Statham. And this is a film that I've waited about eight months to watch. And and I say this not in a in a in a maybe my expectations were too high. I if you can imagine, like for every not there, he's got a it was a parent, right? It was about seven in the morning. I was weirdly wide awake and my son literally fell asleep on my lap into a really deep sleep. And I thought, well, I can just do whatever I want now. I've got a cup of tea. I'm like, I've got all the time in the world. And I and then I put on a Prime and Wrath of Man was on. I thought, oh, my God, this is like the perfect morning. So I pressed play. And it, it's 
it, it wasn't it's not gonna make my top 10 um so the plot is that um jason statham joins this uh, security company called fortico who well initially we see a, a botch well a cash truck robbery that goes awry where um they stop an, an armored truck they pull out the two people the camera stays in the truck we hear them get shot we hear a civilian get shot and then it cuts to jason statham rocking up and frowning for which he will proceed to do for the next 119 minutes and applying for a job there and apparently like just just getting by and and joining this this company fortico uh, where he is trained by holt mccallany who is a man that could marry me and sweep me off my feet and take me away and as long as he never stopped talking and is a beautiful voice i would never not be in love with him and this so yeah this bar of yours is getting pretty packed now isn't it it's also got Ralph. Uh, sorry it's also got um what's his name it's like oh, the guy in this film that i thought yep yeah, you could kiss me he looks like he'd be a rutger hauer kisser though uh mm. his name is daryl daryl de silva he's a he's a harrison ford i can imagine like you come in the door would open and then you, it's just face would slam against yours and you'd think you're getting into a fight so you'd step yeah. back and put your is it, are you trying to bite my face off and you realize no this is just a passionate kiss from daryl de silva which is totally fine it's got amazing <laughs> hair this beautifully thick luxuriant white hair anyway um actually let's stop let's stop recording for a sec um so yeah so, so uh, the whole film is almost like a mystery really because jason statham's clearly a very capable man, as we find out when this, this, the, the cash trick he works on with Holt McCallan, he gets robbed, and how he deals with the situation. Eddie Marsan plays the sort of manager at the Fortico company that the cash trucks work for. I really like that man. And he, his <laughs> accent is like weirdly impeccable in this film. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's just like, he's just, I don't know, he's only in it a bit, but I just thought, yeah, he's another one who just elevates stuff. Um, and yeah, so you, you go through the, uh, the cast the people who work at there it's josh hartnett josh hartnett shouldn't be in this film honestly i kept on i watched it and i thought you're like quite far into your career and he's still being called like i think his nickname in this is like the boy sweat and they keep on calling him like the new young buck and i thought he must be in his mid-40s and and i thought you haven't progressed at all like since i watched you in the faculty um because he's he's just in this and you think there's going to be some sort of moment he has or some sort of reason to be in the film? No, not at all. Shouldn't have been in it. A bit of a misfire on his agent's behalf. Um, mm-hmm. And as this is all going on, we, we, we're taken to um, uh, a, a group read by, uh, led by Jeffrey Donovan, who uh, who has sort of people on his team like um, Diobi Oropari and Scott Eastwood, who's a bit of a, a wild cannon. And they, they're planning this robbery. And you know that the two sides are going to meet at some point. Um, with that setup in mind, but the whole thing about finding out about Jason Statham is all well and good and quite well done. The, the problem with this is there's certain expectations of a Guy Ritchie film. And um, the, the, the start of it, the way that everyone introduces themselves, the way that everyone talks with like cameras following them around the locker rooms, as, and as you know, because Jason Statham's the new guy, the new Brit, and they're all through like it's a, it's constant like really witty snappy dialogue right like mm. as you would expect and 
but the, but the characters aren't there. Everyone just feels a bit too generic. Like especially coming off the back of um, was it called the Gentleman? The last the last character yes. film. Yeah, which yeah. we we both really liked. Yeah. Uh, and so you're watching this, and I'm thinking, this is just like you know you've got a military group that are planning a heist with like one wild card, one guy who wants to retire, blah blah blah. You've got the people who work in this Fortico security company. And it's, you know, the new guy, you've got the, the, the sort of mouthy young buck, you've got the veteran, you've got a black bloke, you've got a Mexican. It's it's like, it's this is really generic stuff. Like, there's no, this is just really flat. And I was surprised it was directed by Guy Ritchie. And um, it goes it goes on a bit. And then after all this sort of snappy 20-minute introductions dialogue, it just turns, even that gets dropped. And it's just this like slightly above average sort of heist movie. And and the only time I when I was watching it, the only time I realized, oh, this is a Guy Ritchie film, was because they would have these title cards that pop up with words on like a dark spirit, scorched earth, leveling mm-hmm. spleen and heart. And I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously that's kind of a Guy Ritchie thing. But I, I kept on waiting, even as it was clearly coming to its ending, I thought is there going to be something more to this that's like more of a Guy Ritchie stamp? And it just doesn't happen. And because apart from the sort of locker room banter at the start, it's devoid of really strong characters apart from Jason Statham, who does do a good job in all fairness, but his job is is pretty basic. Mm. It's devoid of that witty banter. It's devoid of of humour. It just feels like this overly serious two-hour-long, like basically cash track robbery building up this robbery and and i think i preferred matt dillon in armored because at least that was 90 minutes and just kind of you know more focused Mm. i don't know i was this is it's not a bad film but it really really needed to be better what's it called again wrath of man and that's on amazon prime yeah well i mean i don't think it's it didn't make it into cinemas did it so I guess it's a lower tier. Yeah, Guy yeah, exactly. Man, a Guy Ritchie film that doesn't in Britain that doesn't even make it into cinemas. Yeah, that's, it, mm, yeah. There's no real excuse, is there? Really? Is it? Is it recent? Is it new? Twenty twenty one. Yeah. So there's no real excuse because I mean he could be in cinemas because especially in UK cinemas which are open. So <laughs> mm, okay. Maybe I won't bother with that then. But I did enjoy the gentleman, so yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I'm not, it's not like I'm a massive Guy Ritchie fan. I mean, I, I lock, stock, and you know, snatch. I don't mind. I really like the gentleman, and this was just so. It just sort of felt. I don't know if it was. It wasn't even like it was like Revolver, which I really did dislike. Was like trying to be really sort of arty and cerebral and and failed. This just felt flat. Like there was, it's like there needed to be another dimension to it. There needed to be something else. And I fancy half the cast. Um, wow. Okay. Um, right then. Well, I'm going to talk about Don't Breathe 2. Oh, nice. With Stephen Lang. With Stephen Lang. I almost watched this, but I, I went for A Quiet Place too. Um, I actually watched this on Rakuten, the worst streaming service. Um, so free code I'm, I'm glad you give it the full title there Rupert. <laughs> um so it's set eight years after the original and stephen lang the very nasty man from the original film 
uh, very nasty blind man. Uh, he is now living with his supposed daughter, training her to be a survivor and a killer. Um, and they're helped out by a young woman who cares enough to get the groceries, but not enough to inform social services of the conditions <laughs> under which <laughs> this girl is living. Um, so this this is a film that slightly uncomfortably tries to recast Stephen Lang's sadistic killer slash rapist as some kind of principled anti-hero. Mm. And um, it does it by basically couching their bleak existence in the context of these murderous organ traffickers who want to kidnap his daughter for a very specific reason. So these organ farmers come along to um, Stephen Lang's house, break in, and for a while we have a kind of repeat of the original where, except the intruders this time are veterans and they're genuinely malicious, like comically malicious, Mm -hmm. Um, and the house is bigger and now there's this girl Stephen Lang has to watch out for as well but anyway two thirds in the, the a twist sends the film in a completely new direction pretty grisly new direction which is not unlike the structure of the original in fact so first of all I was expecting this it, it, it is the structure of the original it's very much <laughs> first of all I was expecting this the girl the daughter in this to be like trained to be be an actual hardened killer this time around but they don't go down that route which is something i'm glad of anyway lang is brilliant as always and the girl is a decent actor it's the film is bang on 90 minutes and it has the air of 80s exploitation trash horror fine good technically it's well made in a kind of netflixy no one ever turns the lights on kind of way but the concept this concept of trying to rehabilitate Lang's character is is really is it's at best it's troubling. I mean, they basically just throw even worse people into the mix to make him look better. That's really what it's about. Um, it's like they couldn't be bothered to find a way to psychologically explore his malice and his grief. So they just made him the better bad option for this girl. Um, and then he makes this sort of climactic confession and it's done to really sentimental music. And it was particularly dubious that bit like, um, I, some of the editing is off as well in this. Um, like there's a scene where, where he ends up trapped on a greenhouse roof and the glass is cracking, right? <laughs> like an episode of bottom basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the glass suddenly breaks and we're shown like a couple of general falling shots. But then suddenly he's just outside on the ground. Fine. And it's like, well, what happened in between? Like, it's like they didn't have sometimes they don't have enough footage to cover what actually occurred in certain scenes. So it's a bit weird. The organ farmers, like their lair is utterly absurd. Like it's like Dracula's <laughs> castle. It's got these crumbling walls. And it's all candle lit and these ghouls just clad in shadow. But I'm kind of all right with them going for the full horror aesthetic, to be honest, because the alternative when I think about it would be to try and put it into the real world, which would only draw further attention to the complete implausibility of everything that's going on. So Oh, and the number of times, by the way, that these trained killers 
they get the better of Lang, who's blind, get the better of him, and then they end up dead because they choose to make a speech before finishing him off. Brilliant. Time and time again. Um, Honestly, when I was when I used to do uh, when I used to do kung fu, the the first rule when I walked in, and I said, "Are we just going to do like punches and kicks?" I'll put my white belt on. They said, "No, the first rule of any martial art, Brit, is never when you're about to win a fight, unroll a script and start monologuing." And I said, "Oh, that's where a lot of MMA fighters are going wrong." It is. It's it's quite ridiculous how many times it happens. Um, but yeah, overall, it's a pointless sequel, really, to a very good horror movie. I, 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 it's not even really admirable that they try to go down a different path for this one because by trying to deepen Stephen Lang's character, they they almost try and sentimentalise him, and I think it takes away. Even if it had work, work. It, it it takes away from some of that archetypal menace that made him so threatening to begin with. Like the reason he's so threatening in the first film is because he's such an unknown entity, I guess it's like, yeah. and why a sequel and developing his character is never going to work because it's never going to have that impact um, of like, like someone apparently so kind of like harmless turning out to be such uh, just a vicious, um, menace to say um yeah i would say it doesn't need to be seen but then it's got stephen lang in it so clearly it does need to be seen but it is kind of pointless that does seem like a real they i can imagine when they were like putting that script together they must have thought oh we're really hoping the audience goes with this because he was such a clear-cut bad guy in the first one so and like Like foully so yeah, well, the, the whole point of the first one is that the, it, it's meant to, you know, it jolts your kind of sympathies in in quite like in quite a, an aggressive fashion. Because, of course, when they first when the, the people first break in, it's like, OK, well, they've really come up against someone here who knows what they're doing and they but they kind of deserve it in a way. And it's like you're kind of rooting for him. But again, two thirds through that film, you aren't rooting for him anymore. Let's face it, because he is up to no good in his basement, isn't he? He, he is what we call a sausage in butter. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, I think it was unwise to try and go down that route. Um, I, I'm going to do my because uh, after this, it's just a load of Marvel films, and I, it's it's too late in the day for me to start talking about Doctor Strange. Um. <laughs> Although I could, if push comes to shove. Um, so I just want to end up talking about Young Guns 2, which is bizar- bizarrely, considering my, my ongoing one-sided love affair with Lou Diamond Phillips, is a film I've never seen. Uh, only for a few reasons, really. One, because I was never really drawn to Westerns until well, until the last like te- te- five, ten years, really. And secondly, because Bon Jovi did the soundtrack, and I cannot stand that band. But what I found was, I've never seen the original Young Guns, or if I have, it would have been when I was like a preteen or something. Um, <clears throat> I was surprised by the tone of this film. Um, so it, it, it takes the, uh, it follows Emilio Estevez as Billy the Kid, who is, uh, like I said, I didn't, didn't see the first film. He has uh, got his gang 
back together and he's uh, sort of basically trying to live up to his own legend. So you've got people in his gang like Christian Slater, Ludum Phillips, uh, Keith Sutherland, uh, and initially William Peterson, who is Pat Garrett, who leaves and then becomes someone who gets hired by the government as he's trying to go straight and run a restaurant to hunt down Billy the Kid. The reason I didn't watch this is because I think I always just assumed oh, it's just going to be lots of wailing, tedious guitar music, um, mm. Bon Jovi nasally bloody rinsing over everything with just a load of boring shootouts. But I didn't realise that the film is actually quite sad in that it's just Emilio Estevez's character Billy the Kid is trying to live up to this this impossible um, sort of mythology that the, the press have put him under as his gang basically splinter from under him and in under him and, and in trying to sort of live up to his own legend, he just basically leads everyone's to, to like really depressing deaths, especially starting with Kiefer Sutherland who gets arrested and sort of is, is, is um, gets arrested and, taken away and then is rescued by Billy the Kid and all he wants to do is go back to his old life which he can't and so he just gets sort of sucked into this this awful meandering like outlaw life that no one really wants to be part of anymore and and then it, I found it really interesting because you've got Emilio Estevez will try to like liven up everyone's spirits and say you know we're, we're, we're the baggage of the outlaws people people love us and you can just see in everyone's eyes that, that no one believes it apart from him and it just slowly gets chipped away at through the whole film until he's just alone. And I thought, I didn't expect that from a 1990 film with a Bon Jovi soundtrack. Um, I spoke to my parents about this because my mother really likes Lou Diamond Phillips as well. And they both agreed that the sequel is much better than the first film, which I've not seen. Mm-hmm. But I would agree I would, with that. I, as someone who hadn't really seen the first film, I don't even really feel like I need to because uh, like, I went in not not just thinking... Like, oh, I don't care about this film. I actively thought I would dislike it. And it ended up, I just thought this is actually like a quite a quite a sobering and like sort of melancholy look at, at the Wild West. And I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I watched it a lot when I was a kid. And, um, oh, really? Okay. And we, but weirdly, I, again, I did watch Young Guns to before i watched young guns one i thought i found young guns one to be a bit more a bit it's a bit slower i'll help you uh, out rupert it's got charlie sheen in it so it's worse yes well exactly but i do like emilio estevez i think he's a good actor and he does these sorts of roles very well so yeah. He, yeah. Um, he also um he did a film called the way starring his dad um, yes and that was I don't know. There's uh, there's something about Emilio Estevez, and not, not so much with um, this is Martin Sheen, isn't it, his father? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. He feels like part of my childhood. Although I never really watched the Mighty Ducks, I didn't watch Young Guns. There's just something about him that I look at and think, I, I just want to wish him well, <laughs> bizarrely. And and I really enjoyed watching him in this film. And when I watched yeah, it away. Well. Like, which it really isn't my thing. I just enjoyed it because obviously he directed it and his dad was in it. And it just felt like this sort of heartwarming, gentle tale. I think Emilio Estevez, like he was quite a quintessential part of the, what do they call them? The Brat Pack? Were they, yeah, yeah. Is that what they're called? But yeah. he, I remember him mostly from, in terms of the 80s, defining the 80s, 
the Breakfast Club and Repo, Repo Man. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Which both of which were excellent in their own ways. But yeah, he's just a very reliable screen presence. He has a depth which alas Charlie has never had. No. It's so funny because growing up obviously Charlie Sheen was in a lot of films, mm. especially post mortem in two thousand where he was called Charles Sheen because he was being serious. And and I just thought he's been in a lot of stuff and he's more familiar to me. But then you realise that Emilio, the sort of, you know, a baby faced brother, is actually just where all the gold is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And well, and he's directed now, isn't he? Because he did. He directed Emilio as he directed The Way. Was it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he directed The Way. Yeah. And he did one called Bobby, which was about the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Um well, it wasn't about a British policeman off duty in the 60s. <laughs> no, alas. But um, but that was really impressive um, in terms of like massive ensemble cast, very stylishly directed. I thought that's quite unusually bold for an ex-actor because usually ex-actors make some pretty <laughs> dull-looking movies. They're not particularly virtuoso. But, it was yeah, it was really impressive, that. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's clear where the talent is. Well, I'll um okay. Where where is um where is that available? Uh, to... You ask a question that masquerades a thousand questions. Wherever it is, you know it's they've only got Young Guns two. They don't have the first one because yeah, on they say we're not, we're not buying the rights to that. Yeah, got, it's like got, why bother with the second one? Like, we've we've got we've got PM Entertainment and Young Guns two seal the deal. Um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna randomly guess Amazon Prime. Probably is. Um. Okay, well, I'll finish on Prime and a film called Man Down. Um, now, this was this is an interesting one. This was a 2015 action slash war drama starring Shia LaBeouf, Jay Courtney, and Kate Mara. Mm-hmm. This was the movie that had the distinction of uh, making seven pounds on its opening day in the UK. Right. Because only one ticket was sold. Um, so Did you enjoy it though? Well so <laughs> let's let's go through the plot. Um so it it basically it cuts between this post apocalyptic nightmare scenario, um, where Shia LaBeouf is searching for his son. Um and it cuts between that and the time before the apocalypse when he was training as a marine and enjoying time with his wife and son before leaving for war which looks like afghanistan so basically in the future plot line um shia labeouf and jay courtney are these uh veterans looking for survivors and trying to find out what happened to the world um and then there's this uh basically this third timeline which is basically just a conversation between shia labeouf and Gary Oldman, who's an army counsellor behind a desk again, Gary Oldman, obviously. Um, oh, and he's on. he's kind of interrogating Shia LaBeouf about some kind of war incident, essentially. So um, I, I found the scenes between Shia LaBeouf and his son very affecting for pretty obviously reasons, pretty obvious reasons that I'm now a father. But they are very well acted and sensitively written. It's a really great performance from Shia LaBeouf because he's effectively playing three characters in this 
I mean, it's the same character, but three different phases. You've got this young, positive rookie. You've got this cagey, traumatized interviewee. And then you've got this hardened, post-apocalyptic badass. Um, and it, it's structured cleverly um, to hold the attention. So you've got these three stories happening, but it will it will jump back and forth at cliffhanger moments. So it's quite well crafted like that. It's got this beautiful music by Clint Mansell. The film, uh, which I was surprised by afterwards, is absolutely slaughtered by critics. And I think it probably all comes down to the last act, which is certainly very bold. I will give it that. Uh, I'm not sure it completely works as a serious exploration of PTSD, but it's certainly not predictable. And I think it's a film that's worth watching for the good performances at the very least. And because it is attempted to do something quite different and actually quite profound with the war movie genre. It's more of a drama, really. It's action drama. Um, and I thought it was um, very interesting. Not completely perfect by any means, but I thought Charlotte Booth was very, very good in it. And yeah, it, it, it's pretty affecting at times, but certainly not a complete write off. And really not worth the complete, like, pummeling it got by critics. Definitely not. That's called Man Down, and that's on Prime. We come to that part of the show where we talk about our, well, the next Arkansas and and our films of the week. And I've got to say, it sounds like it's been a pretty strong week for both of us, which is which is good. Very good. I don't know. I don't know. Some <clears throat> might have been... <laughs> dubious um yes <laughs> if i were to choose one though yeah. if i were to choose well yeah i mean black rain is worth going back to <clears throat> certainly oh, I um, but i feel like i want and 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 it's definitely worth watching uh you know any of those documentaries i mentioned earlier but I, i'm going to recommend man down just because it's the one that is most easily written off. It's not the best film I've seen in this period, but it's the film that's most likely to be completely ignored for the rest of time, unless someone says something. <laughs> and you were that person. And the, time that person. And the time is now. The time is now. I need to watch. I, every time we do a podcast at the end of it, um, I realise I need to watch that film that you saw about, what was it called the Sky at Night or something? The Vast of Night. The Vast, I need to watch that with my eyes and my fists. It's um, such a great late night movie as well. It's something to watch just in bed and just really soak in the atmosphere. Good. I'm going to watch that. Um, yeah, well, for me, obviously, Godfrey Hoax pushed to one side because they'll never be film of the week, but they, they are the films of my life. Um, uh, Hard Target 2 was a, was a pleasant surprise. The Condemned was average whereas it i used to view it once as bad reach me is one of the worst films i've ever seen young guns 2 is a contender mm-hmm. um, because i was really surprised by the tone and approach that film took but the one and and obviously the quiet place part two was great but the one that i thought yes and what and i wanted a franchise to like lurch out of it was nobody mm. um, because it just it just really sings to my uh, sit sit down with a whiskey and just watch a lot of fighting good um, so yeah, nobody from me, man down from you. 
I might watch Man Down. I, I say this, you know, I, I, there's so many films that you've mentioned that I, I and then I end up just watching. Like this last week, I might just do a Marvel episode next week just to get them all off my system. I think, yeah, that's fine because it'd be fine. I mean, I've seen probably all of them, so yeah, except the Shang Tsung, whatever, whatever the hell that was. Shang Shang Chi. Shang-Chi, right, whatever. Yeah, so I haven't seen that. Shang-Sang. Oh, come on, come on, Rupert. That's an ancient Chinese sorcerer played in 97, 1997's uh, Mortal Kombat Annihilation by, what's his name? Brian Clough. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Glover? Who was the, no, who was the, the Brian, uh, Brian he, he of the jaw that was in that film with Shannon Tweed? Come on. Shannon Tweed, I'm like yeah, oh yeah, that film with Shannon Tweed, all right. A woman what? scorned. Um, no, no, come on, he was in Cobra as um, not Brian Johnson. He was not Brian Thompson. Yes. Yeah. In the first one, played mm. by um, was it like Carrie Hiroki Tagawa, who obviously successfully married a 23 year old Russian bride in in a TV show. Uh, in the sequel, takes his helmet off. An ancient Asian sorcerer from another planet, played by Brian Thompson. Oh, I could remember that. Thompson trying to seduce <laughs> Oliver Reed in Hide to Kill. It's just the magic of cinema was right there. <laughs> okay, so, um, oh, by the way, an ongoing thing that we kind of forgot about this week. We're actually with Arkansas. Yes. Tr- trying to get from Alan Arkin to Robert Starr in as few steps as possible. So that's on the back burner for anyone who wants to have a crack at it. Um, yeah. I but this week's Arkansas is to get from Emily Blunt to Lou Diamond Phillips. Emily Blunt to Lou Diamond Phillips. And you get bonus points if you go through Route 666 or Bats. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a really fun episode. Like I, I like you say, I feel like my my week has been stronger than yours now that you go through it. But you yeah. mentioned a few films that I've noted down that I might have to watch with my fists. Um, I'm just looking at my initial attempt to get from Alan Arkin to Robert Starr. Oh, are you gonna have you got it there? This could be good. I, I, yeah, I found it in the WhatsApp chat. Um, <laughs> So this was just off the top of my head. So this is not the official one, but it's a start. So Alan Arkin is in Glen Gary, Glen Ross with Kevin Spacey, who's in Seven with Brad Pitt, who's in Twelve Monkeys with Bruce Willis, who's in Die Hard with Robert Darby, who's in Maniac Cop 2 with Robert Starr. How many steps is that? Five, six. One, two, three, four... Five, I think. Okay, that's not too bad. Nah. Yeah, I'm sure we can whittle it down. Yeah, I'd be interested. It'd be nice to do it in one step. One step. <laughs> it's actually, not even possible. Okay. Um. So yeah. Okay. So who was it? Emily Blunt to. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. Okay. And as always, Rupert, I want you to end by closing your eyes, and thinking of you. Kneeling in a pond in a luscious field, and you look up, and a rainbow appears and lands at your feet. And down the rainbow comes a leprechaun holding a bag of gold. And as he comes down and sits in front of you, he opens his mouth, and a fiver rolls out and rolls all the way down his legs at yours 
and into your pocket. <laughs>